And so that's what our forefathers were actually trying to tell us is that our, everyone should have an equal voice, even when they're in places that we don't think about them. And so I'm really hopeful that as I learn more and as I continue to document this, I'll be able to write something about this because I do think it's the, the, the greatest work of my life. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Get Carried Away. I am your host, Carrie Murray, founder of The Bra Network. And joining me today is B. Oh, I'm so excited to be talking to you. B. Pagels Minor is an award-winning product strategist, podcast host, startup advisor, and investor, executive coach, and a respected thought leader in agile technologies who approaches every problem with strategy, curiosity, and genuine authenticity. Woo, that's a lot of great words. As a dedicated enthusiast of scalable processes, great products, and culture development, these fears strive to promote diversity in tech and, and impact authentic change continues to define their work, life, in and outside of the work stratosphere. Welcome, B. I'm so excited to be talking today. I think I met you through Catherine Gray originally. Yes. I mean, has doesn't everyone meet each other through Catherine Gray here? I think so. Uh, I think she does she know everybody. He's the Kevin Bacon of Southern California. This is so true. B was also on a panel at the Wealthy Woman Summit that I did last August with Catherine Gray's panel, all about investing and funding and you know creating a fund or getting funding. And you can catch the replay of that. I'll put that in the show notes, the link to your great panel. It was really great. It was on the boat. Did you feel any queasiness when you were on the boat mm. at all? Oh my gosh, it was so bad. I literally oh, really? just, I kept, so apparently, so I've been on smaller boats, I've been on larger boats, but all of them have been moving. So oh. there's, there's something, my wife said that there's something about being stationary on a boat, being able to see that it's moving, that makes you more easy. So the entire time I was on the panel, my eyes were basically closed because <laughs> I, I did, I was, I couldn't do it. It was really yeah. bad. <laughs> and you guys were in those high top chairs too. <laughs> yes. Honestly, I was like, please don't slip off the chair. They are literally <laughs> recording this and taking photos. Although the crowd was so nice and I'm sure that everyone would have just been so chill, but I would have like literally had to sink into the, the ocean of embarrassment <laughs> if that had happened. So it's all good. We had a few people. I know at some point when I could see behind you, the, the horizon move, I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh, no. Yes, yes. this is, this might, we might need to go. <laughs> That's why this year it's not going to be on a boat. But anyways, thank you again for coming and doing the panel back then in August and managing seasickness, even though we didn't go anywhere. But since then you have now founded Divergent Ventures. First, before you tell us all about Divergent Ventures and why you started this, I'm dying to know when you were a kid, if I were to have asked you what you wanted to be when you grow up, would you have said, oh, I want to create a, a venture firm? No. So I would have said I wanted to be Claire Huxtable. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And funny story, I actually did go to law school. And in my law school application, I said I wanted to be Claire Huxtable. So like I, I legitimately. <laughs> did you go to Howard? And, I did not. So I did not go to Howard, actually. So I actually went to the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. Okay. But so I was like, let's say let, I was like 25. So this 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 went on through tw the age of 25. So like this is this this is a very specific thing. But I'm actually also a proud law school dropout because I discovered tech. So, you know, it's one of those like interesting things that happened in my life. I love that. That's so exciting. Did you now, do you ever plan on going back to law school or you're just like, bye? So if it were up to my parents, yes, I would go. Because technically I only have like two semesters left. So that's actually not a tremendous amount. But I try to explain to them that I would still have to pass the bar. 
Yeah. Right. And so passing the bar is a big deal. Like that, like that's a, a huge thing. And now that I have a kid, we're planning on having more kids. I'm not sure if I have the energy for it. However, I am thinking about getting an, an, an MBA, right? So this is executive MBA because that aligns a little bit more with, you know, my long-term strategy. But most importantly, you know, one of the things I learned from, you know, business over time is that the best way to be a great business person is to be surrounded by other people who want to be great business people. And so that's one of the things like steeping myself up and proud of those people seems like it makes more sense than trying to be with a bunch of attorneys when I realize the thing I least like about the law is the fact that you have to wait for it to come to you, Uh, right? Like, you know, you can't just simply say, I dislike this thing. Let me go fix it. You have to actually go find a scenario to then go over and try to fix that thing. And I'm not like that. I'm more like, let's make a lot of money, pay whatever you got to pay to fix whatever this, this, this wrong is and make it right. So I'm a little bit different in that way. Well, I like that. Well, you'll probably get to a solution faster. And if you can you know, put money towards the problem as opposed to waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah. I, I can actually see you in a courtroom though. It'd be kind of cool. Oh yeah. Oh, I can debate with the best of them. Yeah. It drives my wife crazy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, tell us then from law school all the way to Divergent Ventures, what what, what was your pathway to get you to start Divergent? Yeah. You know, so I'm one of those fortunate people that my path was not, you know, defined for me. You know, I didn't have parents who could open doors or who had big bank accounts who could support me in that way. You know, I was very loved. Actually, I always tell people, I went to school, I went to some of the fancy schools in the world. And the difference between me and the other people who graduated is that at least I knew my parents loved me at the end of it. Cause I was like, oh. some of their stories were, were terrifying. I was like, whoa, <laughs> my goodness gracious. It's like, your mama don't cook for you when you go home. <laughs> like, this is, this is sad. I don't know what's going on with your life. Uh, but you know, it's sad. <laughs> it really was sad. I was like, she don't even take you to dinner. I was like, darn. I was like, you got to pay for yourself. That's sad. That is um, sad. So I graduated in 2008, though. And so I graduated the, the largest economic downturn. And so I actually started off my career as a store manager at Target. And honestly, though, being a store manager at Target is some of the best experience you can ever get. Because first of all, all the employers are smarter than you because all <laughs> of them have been there way longer than you. And so they know way more than you do. So like that, that humbled me very quickly. And then the first time you have to like argue with an old grandma about whether the cereal was stale before she opened and ate half of it or not. <laughs> and your manager told you that, like, so, like the district leader says that y'all have too much loss for your store. So you literally have to argue about $4 with someone. It will completely <laughs> change your mind about your career trajectory. It's like, no, I need to figure out what I'm supposed to do because this is super frustrating, actually. Especially for a four dollar <laughs> box of raisin bran. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know, the great thing about working at Target is that they would pay for for grad school, and since I couldn't afford my student loans anyway, I went to grad school. And so I actually did an MBA MIS program back in the day, and that program led me to a company called ShareSell, which was in affiliate marketing. So affiliate marketing is well, so they, they call it performance marketing. Every time they change names, whenever they think something gets a bad rep, but they call it performance right. marketing. And essentially, if you are a human that you go to someone's blog and you click a link and then it takes you to a place to buy something, that's performance marketing. And so I started off there as tech support, then kind of, you know, became agency relationship manager, and then kind of became the first like product person. And that, that changed the trajectory of my career because I've been a product person for the rest of my career and kind of increasingly larger companies. And even that was by accident. 
a lot of people, they, they get very impressed because they're like, oh, you worked at Apple, Netflix. But it was really because I had decided to do a lot of public speaking. Like, you know, I wasn't getting the traction that I wanted in Chicago. And, and let's just be truthful, Chicago historically is a primarily, you know, cisgender white city, right? Yeah. And it's also a lot of, you know, kind of the historical United States businesses. So manufacturing, insurance, fintech, things like that. And so I didn't look like those people. <clears throat> and but I realized because, you know, even back then, I like influencers were always a thing. Like I mm-hmm. hate that they call influencers. They like they give influencers a bad name, but there's always been people that we follow that we are like, oh, well, like that person's cool. I'm gonna buy their book or I want them like to have Claire Huxtable. She exactly like Claire Huxtable. <laughs> she influenced and, and by us. The way, and and by the way, Mrs. Huxtable goes to kindergarten, best episode ever, because she goes on a local like PBS show and she like runs circles around them. And so that's again, it's that that same idea. So I was like, if I can talk in front of people and show them that I'm smart, maybe I'll get better jobs. And so that took me all the way to San Francisco for Lesbians Who Tech in 2018. And then a recruiter from Apple saw me talk and was just like, we need to get you an Apple. And so that was like the next huge change in my career because getting out to Silicon Valley, all of a sudden people put respect on your name and gave me an opportunity to start getting into these rooms. And so then that's actually how I got to Divergent, right? Because you get into these rooms, you have opportunities to invest in various companies or to learn about companies before they are even, you know, a company that, you know, other folks know about. And so then you have the opportunity to say, sure, I would like to throw my like small amount of money, right? Because, you know, again, you know, I, yeah. I I, I I still don't consider myself rich because I now hang out with rich people. So I know what rich looks like. So I'm a person who is comfortably able to live my life compared <laughs> to those folks. Actually, I went to a preschool the other day to, to potentially enroll my son. And there's like two Rolls Royces in front of this preschool. Wow. And I was like, I was like, wait, so we go into the same preschool. I was like, it's in my budget. It's in your, I was like, it's definitely in your budget. You're having a Rolls Royce. But that's the, that's the type of world I live in now, which is very strange. I ended up going through and having these investment opportunities and I paired that with consulting, right? Because what was happening is, is you, when you hear about these companies before they hit big, you also get these opportunities, you know, not only to invest in them, but to help them get to their point. And so that that's when I started to really, you know, hone my product, my product experience and become a product market fit expert. And so those two things combined, it just kind of naturally devolved into, well, evolved into you know, creating divergent, right? Because I, I kept meeting these really great, excellent companies. And my background being from Mississippi and then having lived for so long in the Midwest, it just naturally gave me an opportunity to see that there's so many great founders outside of the traditional tech ecosystem that just are completely overlooked. And then if you you combine my network, my desire to give back in this way and a check it just really created this really great synergy that became Divergent Ventures. I love that. I love that. Now, now for the the people who are listening, and if any aliens just landed on Earth and happened to listen to this podcast, what exactly is a venture firm? What does yeah, exactly so, do you do? So first and foremost, a venture firm is an organization. So, so one of the ways that I'd like to think about this is that people people think of venture as like this huge thing. But it's essentially just an entity that allows people to invest into companies before they're public, right? And so, for instance, if you are a human who has money, you would go to a venture firm and say, here is a check 
that I now expect you to invest in a slate of companies. So not one company, it's always like one way that people pitch is it's a diversified portfolio of mm-hmm. companies that match your thesis. So your thesis was whatever statement, that you, whatever position that you've taken in terms of how you're going to make your investments. And then they get exposure to that. And the expectation is that, you know, you're going to return value to them. Now, you know, kind of the, the most minimum standard for a VC firm is like at least a 4X return. But the reality is, is that, you know, the expectation or hope is that you're going to have a 70 or 100X return on what people have invested with you. So again, it's kind of a wrong statement to think of a firm as like a traditional company. Instead, it's an entity that allows for investment to happen in these companies. And I like to clarify that point because a lot of times people will come to me and approach me like I'm a company uh-huh. and say, hey, B, you know, can you do X, Y, Z? And I was like, oh, no, no, that's not what venture firms do. Like, you know, I, I literally only invest to make those investments and to ensure those investments are successful for people. That was a perfect definition that was explained perfectly. I think my, you know, 12 year old could understand that now. That was great because I do think there is a lot of pie in the sky thoughts when we hear the word venture or capital or investing. We're like, nope, that's not me. I don't have any money to do that. That's not me. Or that's not my brand. We're never going to be ready for to get funding. I'm just going to be in my own little influencer lane and sell on direct to consumer on Instagram or anything, you know, and, but really, we should all be looking to get funding if you're a business owner. Speaking of that, why the Midwest South area? I know that's where you're from and I know that's where you're trying to create the most growth, but what made you hone in on that particular area of the United States? So what I'd like to talk about is that as a product person, my number one job is to make insights, right? It's not actually to, you know, people are like, oh, well, you decide what goes into the product. Well, the the way I decide what goes into the product is by having an insight. And that's about being deeply enmeshed in the day-to-day of what's happening, working with people and learning about them. Like when I'm working on a product, I'm constantly talking to people who use my product so that I can so that I can listen for that thing that they're not saying. I mean, it's the old Henry Ford thing. It's like if you had asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse, not a car. Like right. it's the same exact thing. And so this is what happened when I was doing all this consulting, right? Because like what would happen is, is that I'm like, oh, this company is great. I've helped them, you know, really set themselves up. They look like a growth company. I think they're ready for their seed or their series A or the series B. And so then I would come back over to my folks on the West Coast or East Coast and say, look at what I've done with this company. They're really great. All of their growth metrics, which by the way, there's most people don't realize this. So if you ever are founding a company, there's lots of tools out there that can tell you, for instance, all of the metrics that, you know, this company that was at C stage looked like this, this company at Series A looked like this. And many of these companies had outperformed all of these numbers, right? So, uh-huh. so logically, right, again, because I'm a logical person, like I try not to be a heart-focused person, but I'm a logical person. I would say, well, if these companies look like this and it's better than what these other companies look like, in theory, you should want to invest in them. But the pushback I was getting was, well, you know, know. that person's like, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't know if I get it. And I'm like, well, what don't you get? Like, this is a product that like literally exists everywhere and people need to use it. Like, and it's like the numbers are working out. I'm so confused. And when you really, when you keep asking why, so like there's the, there's this theory called the five whys. And so Uh you keep asking someone why. And so eventually you'll get to the, the crux of what the issue actually is and what it, it, what it really ultimately was, was the fact that these people did not know them. They did not go to the same schools that they had gone to. 
you know, they weren't a part of their network, so they didn't feel confident. So that's one of the secrets about VC that people don't know. And in fact, that's one of the differences between like a lot of people who are modern, who are modern VC people now and people who are like the holdovers from VC. The, the main difference is that we're going through and using every tool known to mankind to try to develop this great deal flow that allows us to make the smart investment, right? So it has nothing to do with our network. Like my best friend can come to me and say, B, I have the best idea in the world. I have all these different backers and I get to say no. Cause I'm like, even though I like know all that about you, I actually have this data over here that says that, you know, there's actually companies that look better than you, right? And so that's the way that you have to think about these investments. And so because of the fact that I kept getting this pushback when very logically these people looked better than these other companies, I had to say, well, this is because of where they're located, right? It, all things being equal, if these same exact people had gone to the same schools as y'all or were located on the coast, chances are they would get this investment. And so then when I, when I realized that, I said, well, let me look at the data because like maybe this is just like a one-off for the people that I know. But the data actually shows it too. So essentially 86% of all VC investment goes to five states. So it goes to California, Washington, New York, Massachusetts, and Texas. Right. And then wow. that's not even it's not even comparable between those, because like the difference between Texas and California is like many orders of magnitude different. Right. Sure. And so it's exceptionally disturbing when you think about that, because what you're saying is, you know, this population in the United States is like, I don't know, it's like 300 million plus or it's closer to 400 million now. Those five states represent less than like 20 percent of the entire U.S. population. Right. Wow. You know, and so you're you're essentially saying all of these people who live in this country, who do not live in these places, are not worthy for investment. So that's a wrong thinking. So mm-hmm. then I was like, let me take a step further. Let me go even further into this data. And so, again, this is a majority, like a large majority of the U.S. population. The second part of it is BTW, these people actually generate over 60% of the GDP, right? And by the way, when I say 60%, I'm actually only talking about my region. So I don't even include the rest of the Northeast. I don't mm-hmm. even include the rest of the, the far West. So, you know, if you actually start adding more of those states, and I'm sure you'll probably go, you can creep up to 70, 75%. Yeah, I think so. Idaho's growing too, right? A lot of yeah, tech is I, moving yeah. to Idaho. Yeah. And by the way, Idaho is in my investment zone because I was like, let me make sure I get Idaho up in here. Like yeah. Idaho and Utah. Yeah, they're, they're growing. Stuff. They're doing some, they're doing some really yeah. great stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it really goes to show how short-sighted this is. Because imagine these these particular states, these particular regions, we're able to do all of this with less development than these other five states. So imagine if we actually start imbuing these states with the types of investment that they deserve, right? Because it is true, right? If the simple fact is, if there is money in a place and you can help you know, create opportunities for people to create companies that are sustainable companies in those places at a faster rate, in a more sustainable rate, like you're going to create a tremendous amount of economic change, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was really what really sealed the deal for me. It's like every single piece of data that I'm finding shows this. Oh, and one other really interesting statistic. So more than 44% of all companies that were found in 2022 were in these regions too. Right? Oh, wow. And so when you think about that as well, that's with a depressed, underdeveloped, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Imagine if, like, so for instance, I was talking to, uh, uh, so one of the things I do is I do 
so much research and just trying to find even just change makers. So I did this initiative starting at the beginning of this year. And actually, I'm about eight people away from hitting my thousand. But I said, I want to meet a thousand change makers in 2023. So I only have eight left. But wow. the whole point is, is that, I, you know, I often talk to people right before they're going to found their companies. And because of the fact that they don't have the same resources and services in many of these states, you know, I'm getting questions from founders being like, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, where should I actually incorporate? What, you know, how do I know which banks to work with? And I'm like, these are just, these are basic things that we take for granted in California or we, we take do. for granted in yeah. New York because there's mm-hmm. so many incubators or services that you could just, you could just drop in one day and they're just like, oh, we're just here to help people. Right. And so if we could duplicate some of these different things in this ecosystem, which by the way, we're already starting to do it. Imagine what we can actually accomplish. That's incredible. Well, and it's imagine the long-term effect it would have on not only the business owner, but their family and their family's family. You're creating a generation of wealth, you know, but also that influences education, policy change, politics, like money influences everything. So we get more industry creating in those areas ever before people are going to be looking. Well, and I think, you know, to your point, so this is actually, this is my, this is my, my secret. This is my secret. I'm, I'm saying on a podcast, so maybe it's not going to be so secretive. <laughs> so, you know, I am a transgender, non-binary, Black human, right? I was assigned female at birth. So, you know, l- literally, I guess I'm a lesbian as well, right? And, and so when you think about that, like coming from where I'm from in Mississippi, you know, being where I've lived, you know, in North Carolina and Iowa and Illinois, the one thing that you get from there is that the difference between someone feeling comfortable and safe and not is usually 500 or a thousand bucks a month. Right. And so think about that when someone feels safe, all of a sudden you go, instead of worrying about, well, the reason I'm not able to pay my bills and feed my child and have the things that I want might be because of this person who looks different than me or who loves different than me or who lives in a different area than me. But if you start to feel comfortable, you start to feel, you know, and and I should say, I'm speaking from experience, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my mother is a single mother of three kids. When, when she passed away, I had looked at her tax returns. She never made more than $24,000 a year the entire time she was alive, right? So she lived until she was 48. So she, for, for all of those years, she raised us three kids on essentially nothing. Like, I mean, and and even for me, I'm not even being egotistical. I mean, I literally have friends who I'm sure spent $24,000 on clothes last month, right? Like that's what they do. And, and, and again, there's no judgment on them because statistically they can afford it based on how much income they have. But, you know, when you look at that and I look at myself, you know, I was on the free lunch program, right? You know, I was, you know, we did not have steady housing. Like we often stayed with different people. You know, my teachers knew there was no point in sending a letter home to my mother. You had to send it to me. And they also knew I was going to give it to my mom because I was scared of my mama. <laughs> but, you know, you know. So like they knew that we were like we had an unstable housing situation. Right. And so and I know that as soon as I actually got into my career and I could get health care like I was supposed to have it, I could afford to like buy food. I was able to also help my, my family. Right. You know, all of my cousins, they know that when you graduate from high school, call cousin B because you don't get a laptop. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to get what you need to make sure that you, you're going to take care of this. And so I'm speaking from experience because I know that that difference between I am terrified and I'm not sure what I'm going to have next to I feel comfortable. I know where I'm going to live. I know what I'm going to eat. I know my kids are OK. That's the difference between someone who has a hateful spirit and a fearful spirit 
and someone who's completely free to start thinking about how can I be a positive influence, not only just on my family, but now I'm starting to think about my community yeah. and how I can do those different things. And so I do think that that's part of this, that that's part of the mission here, right? You know, obviously we create this amazing ecosystem of amazing founders and companies and we create the opportunity for them to hire great people. And then we get that extra thousand bucks a month or extra 2000 bucks a month. So people can start getting out of this fear mechanism and they can start getting into hope because hope is the differentiator between a great society and a society that, you know, yeah. is going to fail. And, you know, hope brings up, brings about innovation. You know, when people are feeling satiated with, I have a roof over my head, I have food on the table, you know, we're, we're in a safe place. Oh, I can create a solution for this problem that I'm dealing with now because I'm not worried about where's where's our next meal coming from. So hope definitely brings about innovation, which I think is we definitely need all over the world. I think that's incredible. So tell me, how does a well, first, how does a founder or business or brand, you know, what how do they qualify for funding? What makes them feel like, okay, I'm ready? Or do do they always kind of live? you know, hand to mouth or kind of, oh, I made $6,000 this month. Oh, I made $10,000 this month. They're like, when are they kind of ready to qualify for funding? Yeah. So first and foremost, one thing that you need to keep in mind is that you don't need to take funding, right? So that's, that's actually really funny for a very yeah. person to get on. <laughs> but that, that, that's actually a really big deal because a lot of people assume that you need to have a billion dollar business. But the simple fact is, is that we have millions and millions of amazing businesses that exist in this country exist around the world every single day that more than sustain the person who's founded it that more than sustain the people who work for it and they're great right so i, I want to you know clarify that right because right. like to a certain extent like one of my favorite companies is mars so mars is a privately held company a billionaire family owns it they will never go public they have no desire to ever go public and they talk about it daily they're just like they're like, you know, true, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to have the trajectory that we became a billion dollar company. But even if we weren't a billion dollar company, we just want to be a family owned business that we don't have to worry about other people's opinions. So that's the first thing you need to talk about amongst yourselves. So it's not just, you know, you as the you know entrepreneur, it's also your family. It's also your employees, because when you do bring on investors, you are now beholden to those people. Right. And so there's yeah. going to be very specific expectations. And true, you might get cool investors like me, who's just like a much more laid back investor than some other people. Like, for instance, I often look for people who are trying to have less funding rounds. Like, I don't necessarily want to invest in people who want to be, you know, fundraising for the rest of their lives. I think they should be building their companies. So that's the first thing. But having said that, so much of VC investing is belief in the actual person, like the founder. Right. <clears throat> so that's, so I say that because. There's no such thing as this is the perfect time to seek investment because there's people who, you know, haven't even built their MVP yet who might get investment because there's such a clear conviction. Like it's so clear to that investor, like, okay, no, this person's going to be able to do it. And then it's at this price. So I'm, I'm actually comfortable with this price. Like, you know, like let's, let's just do that check size. But then there's other people who are just like, no, I need to see some traction, right? And so traction can look like a couple of different things. So one is like, you know, you've had a certain amount of growth month over month over month, right? So, you know, to your point, like maybe it's like the 6,000 and 10,000 and 15,000 and I don't know, each month you have like that, like that, that track record. And notice I said thousands because a lot of the first companies you're, you're investing in a seed stage, especially currently, like mm -hmm. 
it, they're not going to have millions of dollars of revenue. Like if they do, then they're yeah. probably a little bit beyond seed stage. And they need to be like, well, why haven't you raised? And then also, why are you raising now? Like that just seems kind of weird. Like what, like what, why do you need me? Right. Like that would be kind of yeah. strange. The second thing that people are, are really looking at is so outside of like, you know, have you had a little bit of traction from, you know, a, a fiscal perspective? It's that does the does the world want to use you? Like, I think a great example is like superhuman or like, um, huh. So both of these are huh. like kind of like these like very like enterprise focused products that did not have. I mean, they still don't really have the best business models. But there's such a, a hunger for them that they've been able to continue to get investment, even as they continue to go through and continue to try to find their perfect product market fit. And so I think those are good examples that there's so much buzz and there's so much energy and there's so much excitement. I mean, one, one, I think one person who I can't remember who said this. So I, so I just want to clarify, I did not say this. Someone else said it who can't, I cannot think of. But basically, they said that, you know, product market fit is when customers start to use your product in violent and destructive ways. Right? Interesting. And so a great example is old school Twitter. So old school oh. Twitter <laughs> would break down constantly because there was so much traffic. They couldn't keep up with the traffic. They were trying to scale up at the same time. I mean, another great example is like Netflix. When Netflix first started doing streaming, like one of the number one things they had to do was focus on how to actually stabilize the connection so that you can actually stream all over the world. So that's explosive and destructive ways. And so like, for instance, if you've not made any money, but you can show me that you are have a product that's being used in those types of ways. I can still write a check to you because like then if a person like me with my, my mindset, I go, so then let me help you actually figure out how we get to product market fit. Like how do we, how do we actually start to scale this up in such a way that we can actually make, you know, X, Y, Z amount of money off of it. And so those are two things. So explosive usage, explosive instructive usage and, and or monetary traction are the two ways that you know you you have a good idea that you could actually go out there and get funding. Oh, I love that. That was really specific. I like that. <laughs> now what's you know divergent ventures, what's like the top three things you guys look into for funding when you're looking at brands and founders and you're like, oh I like that or no, that's not for us, you know, what kind of yeah. like sparks your interest? Yeah. So first and foremost, like I said, regionality. So obviously you have to be in the right region. You'd be surprised at how many people apply considering how explicit we are about. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> like, I'm like, no. How many people I'm don't like, read? <laughs> and, well, and, and my, my favorite part is like somebody actually, I said, well, you don't meet the thesis. They were like, well, I was still hoping that you'd be interested. And I was like, <laughs> Hoping and dreaming is not how things come true, honey. Yeah, I was like, no. do I need to treat you like my toddler? Okay. But then the second part of it is like, so I really, really care about the founder. And I really care about capital efficient, pragmatic founders, right? So for instance, like the, the founder of Stripe, you know, true, they just yeah. did a fundraise. But the thing is, is they had, they had only used a very small percentage of all of their funding. And he did the fundraise primarily to unlock, you know, money for his employees. And so, you know, this was just like a, a pragmatic move to ensure that his most loyal employees would stay. And so I love that approach. I love people who are thinking about what can I do to ensure that I can continue on the trajectory that I need to, to continue on so I can have a successful exit. But at the same time, like, I don't want to be making decisions because I'm coming from a place of scarcity. And so I yeah. love that. I love those types of founders. And the third is I really look for founders who are looking for acquisition as their exit. So I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly negative about IPOs. I mean, I use Mars as my example because that is actually my dream scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So my dream scenario is a company 
that is super, super, super great. Like they understand exactly what they're they're building, why they're building it, who they're building it for. They have a great, you know, talent pipeline. So they have the right talent they they absolutely need. And then they're just looking for someone like me to help make the right connections and help them accelerate the product market fit. And then they don't want to do five or six rounds. Instead, they're looking for ABCD company to acquire them. Right. I think that that's like the perfect example of what I, what what you know success looks like. And also because of something, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop another term because I think this is super important. And so anyone who is ever looking to invest, especially anyone who's looking to get a venture, you have to know about dilution, right? So that very first time you make an investment, your number might look great because you're like, oh man, I own 10% of this company, I own 11% of this company. But by you know round you know three rounds later, you're like, I own less than two percent of this company. Like that's not great, right? And so like you know for me, it's so important to think about how the heck are we going to retain the value of our investment? And so, you know, one of those great ways to do that is through acquisition. I mean, a great example is like, I wrote a check for a company that was like, you know, in my mind, like somewhat negligible, but because they're an acquisition target, it's already looking like the value is about 5X. And I only did this check like six months ago. So, you know, it it just creates this really great upside and it de-risks your investment to a certain extent. Gotcha. I love that. I think what happens too is, you know, we're in the Shark Tank era of, you know, television and everything. And I think people, especially business owners, they they look at the show and they think like, oh, this is all I need. And then I'll just go talk to the sharks. And then you see how many people are so disappointed and, and everything. And in fact, my last guest, do you know Vicky? You must know Vicky. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Vicky and Cherise. Yeah. yeah. So they, they were on my podcast last week and we were talking about Shark Tank and that whole experience. And interesting. I'll be curious to watch it this week. That's for sure. <laughs> Which by the way, did you know that, so was it the the owner from the Mavericks? He has not made a single dollar off of a single deal that he's done during Shark Tank. I did not know that. Really? Yes. So I just think that's like very interesting. And and again, the one thing about, so this is another interesting note because like they, they've obviously seen hundreds of companies over time and they've made hundreds of investments. And the, the simple fact is it's a certain extent, you can only manage so many of these investments at a time and yeah. actually have them be successful. Because that's another thing that I think is super important when you're thinking about investment. How many people are they actually managing and how much can they actually pay attention to you? Because that's a huge part of it as well. Yeah. And do you think, you know, if the companies that you that invest in with Divergent, how much of a say do you get to have on their practices and regulation, product development? I mean, how much are you in on the ground floor with them? Or are you just like, here's a check. I'll see you in a few weeks. What's so funny is I was telling my wife, this is just like being a product manager, right? So, mm-hmm. so much about being a product manager, you don't necessarily have the ability to fire and hire people, but you have the ability to influence people. So instead of saying, you know, I have control, my goal is to have such a great influence and be so well-respected that they choose to follow my advice. Now, having said that, if my fund gets to, you know, the certain size, because, you know, right now, you know, we're, we're, we're small potatoes compared to some of these funds, right? Like I was reading an article right. this morning that someone just did a billion dollar raise. And I was just like, I cannot imagine asking for a billion dollars. I mean, I'm going to have to at some point, I guess. I but mean, like, get I was comfortable. Like, well, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah. But the whole point though, is just that, you know, at those levels, like you're writing, you know, 10, 20, 20, you're writing a huge part of the check. And yeah. so then you can demand like board seats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you do have a little bit more control. But even then, again, I fundamentally believe so much in life 
is about being a value added partner to someone and they choose to follow you. So I don't care how big I get, like my goal is to be influential because if I'm influential, I will ensure that I get the types of results that I need anyway. I love that. It reminds me of Arlen Hamilton's book. It's about damn time. That really influenced me to think about, I never thought about investing or any, like, no, that's not for me. That's not for the, you know, founders on, on our network. And then once I read that book, I was like, oh, <laughs> everyone needs to read this book, by the way. Um, yeah. Now tell me if I'm an individual and I was just like, B, I have my grandmother passed away. I got 30 K. I don't know what to do with it, but I know I want to invest it. What, what would you recommend to me? Who's like, take the money and invest it. Yeah. So first and foremost, like, so I'm going to tell you about my journey, maybe because that's, that's the way. And, and I think that that's really interesting. So first and foremost, I started off with the stock market, right? So I got to, I started off with the stock market, learning about the stock market, learning how you can kind of understand why things happen in the stock market, because that then creates like a basically like financial, like layer for all the rest of the types of investments, right? Then after the stock market, I then got into a little bit of real estate, both personal and other stuff like that. And so then that was like really cool or whatever. But then I also realized that again, you know, both stock market and real estate, it kind of feels like kind of silly in some ways because like so much of it's completely out of your control, right? You know, it's just like someone arbitrarily made a decision from a governmental perspective and then all of a sudden oil goes up or goes down. And Interest it's like, rates. Well, but yeah. oil, it's like, it's like, but technically the value hasn't changed. It's just that someone said something silly, right? And so I didn't really love that. And so then I got into this like, um, like the republics type thing. So like we can do like the large, really huge, like, you know, so these are like hundreds of thousands of people each give like a very nominal amount. And so what was really great about that is that I actually started being able to still see what deals look like and how they assess deals. And I was just like, hmm, that's what I do in product management, right? <laughs> or, or like even for yourself, if you were someone who's ever had to buy a car for your family, choose the bank for your family, you, you like when you're in the grocery store and you're trying to like make an assessment on what, what, what's, you know, what to eat and what not to eat, in some ways you've kind of done some kind of investing, right? Because you've had to go through and make a specific decision about what you think is best for you. And that's ultimately what I realized through some of this. I was like, hmm, it's just gut instinct. I got lots of guts. And so then, you know, then I finally got into angel investing. And so I actually usually suggest to people, there's the, either, either try angel investing. So angel investing, usually you can do $10,000 or less for a check, right? And so that's a like, good good way to go about it. So for instance, I joined Gangels. So Gangels is kind of the, like oh, the yeah. large LGBTQ plus <laughs> angel network. And so I was able to start off at like, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 or $5,000 so I could get comfortable. Like, and once you actually start to get really comfortable, then I was like, oh, now I have more opinions. So then I actually went to a venture fund. And so then, you know, I wrote like, you know, a $50,000 check into like my first venture fund. And then I did a couple other ones. And then I started my venture fund. And so having all that to say, you know, start reading. Mm -hmm. like, you know, even with the stock market, I started just reading the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Insider and also the information. Oh, I really love the information. So I have to really promote the information. The information is an independent news source that's founded by a woman. And, and what I love about it is that they're just talking about the things that you can tell they're kind of talking about the things that they're interested in, which also happen to be, you know, just worldwide trends. And so that's a really great place to go. Where do you find it? Let me, I'm going to put this in the show notes. What's it called? Yeah. It's called the information. It, that's like, that's the actual oh, name. So there, so, very yeah, clear. It's really great. <laughs> so there's a website, there's an app. And so that's actually kind of my most trusted source. Cause like whenever I'm trying to figure out like what the heck is going to be going on in the world, I usually go there, but just start you know, educating yourself on these like basic things. 
Because it ultimately, it really is as simple as you're trying to decide between buying this thing and buying that thing, right? And so it's just about what you feel comfortable in. Because the, the other reality about this is, is that most companies fail. It is yeah. it's an actual fact, right? There's there's no there's not there's nothing that you can do about it. Just like you know, people used to always say real estate is so you know like it's the best investment. We know ever since two thousand eight, it can fluctuate greatly, right? So yeah. there's no such thing as a surefire investment. And that's why a lot of times, a lot of my investments historically and even so today are what am I impacting by making this investment, right? Because I can't guarantee I'm going to make money off this investment. But if I'm investing in a female founder, if I'm investing in a new industry that I think is really cool, at the very least, I know I'm pushing something forward, right? And so yeah. that's one of the other things you have to decide, right? So you have to you have to decide how comfortable you are with losing money. And then you have to kind of create some of the parameters around, like, if I'm going to lose money, what would make me more comfortable? And so that's how I did it. Like, you know, I was like, I'm comfortable. Like right now, you know, a lot of my money is also in this venture fund. So, you know, if it fails, I can at least say I have created a new ecosystem of talent in my regions. And so that I'm comfortable with that. And, you yeah. know, the people who are investing with me essentially have to be comfortable with that, too. And so it's a very mission oriented thing. Because, you know, again, you cannot, you can't, you can't guarantee anything in life other than the impact that you can personally have on other individuals. I so agree with that. I love that. And would you say, you know, what's the, it's hard to say, but risk factor for someone who's new to investing and, and getting into, you know, venture capital or just, you know, funding in general. And they're like, okay, here's my grandma's 30K. You know, how, what would you say? It's a long game, a short game? What, what would you oh, say? Oh, it's a long game. So, yeah. so just, oh yeah. So actually maybe I'll give a, a few more parameters around venture firms. So most venture firms are 10, venture funds are 10 year term, right? So what that means is, is on day one, when you invest your money with a venture firm, they're essentially telling you, we think that this, this investment period is going to be 10 years. Sometimes you get lucky right? Because like how it works out is that, you know, as companies exit, like as positive, like actually as positive or negative things happen, those things kind of get, you know, you know, completed and anything that has happened from them gets put back into the fund, right? So like, let's say, you know, you make a really great investment and somehow that company ends up being stellar and you actually have an exit in three years. Then what will happen is, is the venture, you know, fund manager will say, hey, I've done all my, you know, my accounting here. This is how much should go back to you. And that's the other interesting thing about venture firms. And I actually think this is the kind of a nuance, which actually makes venture firms kind of cool. This is also why a lot of fund managers, a lot of new fund managers, I don't think understand this part though, is that how it works is that a fund manager in, in the US for the most part, we follow European, the European model, which means that we have to return back to all of our investors, the money they put in before we get a dime of the carry. Or you get paid, so, yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, it behooves me, obviously, to yeah. try to accelerate this process because I don't get any money until we have something beyond the amount of money that that we've raised. And so, you know, as soon as as soon as soon an exit happens, of course, I'll be like, oh, sure, here's, here's back your money. I'm yeah. this much closer to actually making money myself, right? And so that's, so when you think about what you have to look out for in addition to everything else, you have to look out for people who are fundamentally comfortable and able to also be without a paycheck essentially for 10 years. Yeah. Because you know, right. a venture firm, venture firm is essentially a full-time job. So they need to, they need to figure out how they're going to survive if if you know 
in between exits, or even if there's not a single exit, because again, there's no guarantee that the it firm manager, yeah, like, well, yeah, it's, it's, and, and even if the even if they break even, for instance, that means the firm manager will not get a single dollar, mm. right? Because, like, you know, you know, they were supposed to raise ten million, they only had exits worth ten million, so zero dollars, so they get nothing of the investment above that. And so that's another thing. That's another example of what to watch out for, because, you know, you can't have someone who's like, I'm trying to do this or like whatever to try to, you know, make this deal work. You have to have people who are going to can be patient and can have the, the type of diligence that needs to happen to ensure the investment is protected. And then, yeah. And then on average, we tell people the goal really is to have exits between year seven and 10. And that's also mm-hmm. why a lot of firms, once you get to the year seven and 10, they'll lower their management fees, right? Because the idea being that there's not really that much management there. And then hopefully there will be exits soon. And so you don't really have to worry about it. But again, the reality is sometimes it could be a year, it could be, and also it could also be 15 years. Because another thing that people don't know, and another reason that's not great to have lots of funding rounds, is essentially every time there's a new funding round, that clock resets, right? Ah. So, you know, you know, I invest in the seed round and then my clock says in 10 years, I should have an exit. Okay, in a year, when they do series A, technically it resets. Like, so it should be 10 years from there. So if you actually look at any LPA agreement, it kind of says that, you know, like the goal is for 10 years, but we know that that can be fudged, right? A little bit, because like, we know that if they could have to do lots of investment rounds, it's, a, a, it's less likely that that exit will happen for 10 years. Oh, wow. That's, wow. That's really fascinating. I love this. I mean, I just saw the Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix. Oh it was so good. <laughs> it was also, so good. I, so, so it's actually so funny. So I went to my, I went to my attorneys and like my fund managers and I was like, my fund administrator, my bet. And I was like, okay, I just want to make sure people know that like, I'm not Bernie Madoff. I was like, I want everything. I want them to be able to log in and see anything whenever they Don't want print to. print on that paper. I was like, <laughs> I could not believe, can I just tell you, I could not believe this because I get like, I like, so, so being a, a, you know, in venture, I had to open the big fancy accounts with like the first Republic banks and the Silicon Valley banks. And that's like a little bit antiquated in my opinion, compared Mm -hmm. to what I'm used to. And I made me a little squirmy. (laughs) So I was like, I cannot imagine putting millions and millions and millions of dollars with Bernie Madoff. And he was like, come here and look at this sheet of paper. And you can't even leave this office with a sheet of paper. I'm sorry. I can't There's believe somebody it with some common sense. I was like, they need it. Okay, I gotta say, it. I gotta say, it like I was saying, they need some black mamas to come up in there <laughs> and talk to Bernie about himself. I was like, because ain't no black woman. Go That's let why that he did not target there. black women. No, thank you. He knew. He knew. <laughs> he knew. <laughs> like, honey, honey, where my money at? You need to run me my money. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm gonna come up in there. You gonna know? You gonna find out some stuff? I could not believe that when I saw that. I was like, that's. Insane. I was shocked. Yeah, I was shocked too. So much money. I'm like, nobody got a statement. When never got a statement. Like, well, and and also to the extent, like, I've never actually heard. Like, so for the most part, you don't really hear huge cases of venture people being untrustworthy because it's also the whole business is based on trust. So, like, you know, you're not gonna get deals if you're not trustworthy. You have a bad reputation. Exactly. So like, I've never heard of people being untrustworthy, but like, you should really be thinking about that. Like, I cannot, like, if someone hasn't thought through, you know, basic things about compliance or how they're going to make sure that, you know, you know, that their money is going to be there. That's a red flag. Like, you know, there's, there's so many systems out there. And again, this also goes back to how they prepared, right? You know, I had set aside money and I had to say, how am I going to pay for all this stuff? 
right mm-hmm. until I fundraise. But the simple fact is, is that they should be thinking about that because it's just, that's just the cost of doing good business. And yeah. that's what we should all be doing. Love that. It's so true. It reminds me of the whole thing with WeWork too, and how that completely went belly up and, and making so many, so much money. And meanwhile, there was no money. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's crazy. Well, B, this has been really, really informative. So I'm sure people are, have, you know, are taking arduous notes to, to get to a better understanding, but tell me how people can get involved with Divergent Ventures, either the founder or an investor. Like how can we get involved yeah. with what you got going on? Cause it's great. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a product person. So the first thing I did was spin up a website. So it's www. So this is actually, someone said it the best. They were like, it's divergent without the vowels. So that's my wife. My wife's the marketer. So she came up with it. So it's D-V-R-G-N-T ventures.com. And so if you go on that page one, it kind of tells you some of the statistics I shared here. But if you go down to the bottom, there's a founder submission form. So submit your form there. And my chief of staff, we go through all of those submissions and we do respond back to them. And then if you are an investor or you want to learn about investing, because to be truthful, I will have a conversation with anyone on this investor tip because I think that it's one of the scariest things you can do. Right. Because it, 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 well, one, it's like, oh, I'm a big kid now. I'm going to do some yeah. serious investing. But then, mm-hmm. secondly, it is, it is kind of terrifying to think about, like, you know, what this looks like. And so I'm always willing to have a conversation and then help point, you know, folks to resources. Or if you want to invest in my firm, you know, of course, obviously, you know, you know. Amazing. Well, then we're going to put your email in the show notes too, then. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, so we can do all that good stuff and we can, we can do all the education. I love that. Now, have you ever thought about writing a book? So it's actually so funny. So I've been talking about writing a book for a while, right? Because so I've been a speaker for a long time. And so my initial book idea was this idea of empowered people and like what that that does from a resource perspective. And when I once I but once I started the venture firm, I realized that it's an empowered ecosystem. So I'm I'm currently taking notes as I build this up because I think that's going to be something very, very important once this is over. And when I say important, I think it's because I want to demystify this idea. Like when I was growing up in Mississippi, I thought, I honestly thought Southerners were dumb. Like I really did. I grew up there. I lived there. I loved everyone around me. But I was like, we didn't have the same jobs. We didn't have the same fancy stuff. And when I finally went to other places, I was like, oh my gosh, like maybe Southerners, something's wrong with us. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it took being educated, being curious and doing the research to understand that we're just under we're we're underdeveloped underrepresented yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah in in this country and so you know i and so that's why you know this work is to also again it's just so important because i really really think that at the end of it the insights that i gleaned from this process will will be foundational as we start to think about in this country and how we actually create an equitable country because it's not just like so most people are just like you know they, they think about race they think about gender they think about sexuality but, you know, the the geographical differences, right? This is one of the things, like, I used to complain just like everybody else about, like, why does every state have two senators? You know, why do we have population-based representatives? Like, why do they get the same amount of representation? And now I know because I've met so many of them across this country. And the ways that they think about work, the ways they think about society, the ways that they think about how they want to have an impact in exactly the same way that I think about it, right? It's yeah. probably exactly the same way that you think about it. And so that's what our forefathers were actually trying to tell us is that our, everyone should have an equal voice, even when there are places that we don't 
think about them. And so I'm really hopeful that as I learn more and as I continue to document this, I'll be able to write something about this because I do think it's the the, the greatest work of my life. I think you just wrote your introduction, by the way, of the book. That was brilliant what you just said and so succinct. I love that. So we're going to put in the show notes and in all the places, link to your website, link to you, all the things and the information. I'm going to add that too. But before we wrap, we've got to get carried away. I know you get carried away about investing and you could talk about this forever, but I got to know something else you're absolutely obsessed with. What do you get carried away about? Oh my gosh. So it's actually shoes. So I mean, oh, so are you sneakerhead? I'm such a sneakerhead. It's like insane. Actually, it's so funny. So I I hired a social media team to help me with my business. And so like, you know, we were doing all this professional content. They were like, honestly, we just have to do your sneakers. So I've actually started posting it. And I actually have two boxes here that I'm supposed to unbox for the social for media the video? post later. Yes, because, and, they, and I'm just like, and it's gotten so bad though, because we, you know. How many do you have? have? So I have like 300. <gasps> yeah. So like my office is actually my shoe room too. So like my shoes are over there and then I'm over here in the corner because my shoes are more important than my desk. Let's just be true. I will not <laughs> so. give my husband any more shit for the 40 <laughs> pairs of shoes that he has. Are they in plastic bins? How do you store them? Oh, of course they're in plastic <laughs> bins. They're like, they're so such, actually I'll take it off. Let so, me yeah, see. You can see. Oh yeah. So he has me. the same thing, the same setup. The container store take all my money. Actually, I want, so there's two things I want. So so I'm very passionate about my sneakers. So I've been actually starting to do research. I'm trying to figure out how to insure them properly. Mm-hmm. So if something happens to them, I could replace them because because they are, it's getting, so there's apps that will show you how much your sneakers are worth. And I was like, this is actually a size of my money, <laughs> right? And so, and so like, and, and I'm just like, why won't anyone let me insure my shoes, right? Like, because, and I'm That's sure that's a really like, good you know, question. For, for some like women, for instance, their purse, like, it's yeah. like jewelry's like, but like a Birkin bag. There's not really an insurance oh, yeah. for Birkin bags either. There needs to be insurance for these, for these collections, these collectibles, right? Yeah. Because they're just as valuable and it's very difficult to replace them. And they uh, accumulate value. Exactly. Um, my husband just bought the Nike, Tiffany, and Co collaboration so that's, that's one of the ones that's one of the ones that I have to open right now actually yeah so I finally got it it took me a while to find you it you got it yesterday right price, <laughs> I got it. man I, I'm so excited like I actually you know what you know so there's an event like there's a, a mixture thing on Sunday I was like maybe I'll wear them oh. you know I gotta wear my Tiffany with my Tiffany shirt yeah one thing I don't I don't have a nice Tiffany chain yet but yeah I'm gonna do it it's okay. like because you know, okay. everybody looks good in Tiffany like that that's, yeah that, that's the hashtag right so yeah. that's what we're gonna do yeah they're real pretty when he showed them to me yesterday I won't spoil it for you but they're real pretty he also has a pair of LPs that I think are his by far his favorite and he rarely wears them we wore it to a like a a wedding the other day and he was and there was grass and he's like I, I need to change my shoes <laughs> I know so I was telling I was telling a friend of mine recently that I need to be like DJ Khaled and get like the little like the little pillow so he so for one he walks in with one pair of shoes then he changes to his nice pair of shoes and then he has like a little pillow under them so that they don't touch the ground I was like I think I might That's have brilliant. to do that for a couple of these pairs of shoes because like yeah. I'm like I get so stressed thinking about wearing them that I haven't worn them, but I feel like I have to wear them just so I could say that is so funny. I did. So. I can't believe you said that. I I can't wait to tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell him to look up DJ Khaled. Like I was like DJ Khaled is right though. That's yeah, like, that's the way you protect your shoes. That is so funny. I love it. All right. Well, then what's the opposite of that? I want to know something you can't stand that people get totally obsessed about, carried away about. I'll give you an example. I can't wrap my head around anyone who can drink matcha because it tastes like 
like you're eating a lawn clippings. And yeah. I don't like camping. Not a fan of camping. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish it was, I wish you had said camping because like camping is definitely one of my, my wife's obsessed with it too. And it's just like, this is the, the exact, like, this is one of the few things that we're so 110% opposite on. It's like kind of crazy. You know, I, I think maybe like the Android versus iPhone thing. Mm. Like I'm an iPhone user, but I don't understand like, like why is this continued like track rivalry? Talk? Yeah. Like just, if you like your phone, just like your phone. Like you don't <laughs> need to come up and say, I'm an iPhone person. Just like, I don't need to go up to you and say you're an Android person. True. Do I not like the green? Sure. But at the same time, that's their fault that these yes. are different colors. This, this is not us. It's not about <laughs> us. It's about them. So let them have the fight. And then the rest of us can just be sane people again because right. I'm so over it. Like yeah, I've, I've, I've been yeah. in, I've been in three different conversations this week where people have been complaining about this, and I'm just like, I'm <laughs> over it. Like I don't understand why we're doing this. Yeah, and please, just it's a phone. Calm down. <laughs> I also think it's always interesting when iPhone and Android come out with a new phone. People are in line to buy the phone while being on their currently working phone. Like they exactly. have a product that works, but they're going to go buy a new one. <laughs> See, now, so the one thing I will say is I'm a super early adopter. Like, so there's no question whatsoever. Like I always adopt things to start like, like very early. But the simple fact is that just admit that, like, don't say there's anything wrong with your phone. Yeah. Like you just want the new thing. Early adopter. That's how I am. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I just want the new thing because it's great. And even if it's broken, I will still think it's great because I got <laughs> to see that it was broken. So. All right. Well, you and my husband have a lot in common because he's also an early adopter. I'm going to start calling him that too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a wants... great way to be. We are the guinea pigs that make everything else work. Yeah. hundred percent. So I thank you for taking one for the team and giving feedback to make products and services better. Thank you so much for joining me. I've had a great time getting carried away with you. Learned a lot. Again, everyone take a minute click on the show notes and follow B and all of their adventures, especially now that we know that you're a sneakerhead. I got to go check out your Instagram and see what, what your team has come up with. This is exciting. Thank you so much, B. We'll be in touch. Bye. Bye. <laughs>